Hello, this is Amy Peekoff, and this is the April 17th edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. Every week I discuss news and politics from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Uh, this week, uh, most of you know that we are going to be discussing the movie Atlas Shrugged Part 1, which is based after Ayn Rand's novel of the same title. Uh, we might spend most, if not all, of the show on it. I actually have really only one other story that I wanted to get to, so I've got plenty of time to take a lot of input from all of you about the, the movie because I'd like to hear your opinion on it. There's been a number of debates that I've seen go, uh, go on actively around there, and I already have one participant's hand raised because I know he's eager to talk about it. He's already written volumes about the, the uh, movie, so we want to hear about that. Now, let me put some ground rules into the discussion first, and I'll give you a little bit of logistics when we actually get to the uh, point where I'm going to actually take your audio input. First of all, no expletives, please. I've seen people be very passionate, uh, mostly the, the people who don't like the movie are very passionate about it, so just keep the conversation polite. Uh, also, don't feel that you have to go along with my point of view. Yes, I'm the host of this show, but I am not an aesthetics expert by any means, and a lot of us who have watched this movie have different contexts that we're bringing to it. So. You know, again, I want to hear what you actually think about it, and we'll have a discussion. And don't don't feel like if I give you my point of view, you have to just say, "Oh yes, I agree." Uh, also, the other thing is, I want no spoilers beyond what happens in part one of the movie. Okay. Um, because there's some people maybe who watched the movie, they would like to listen to this podcast, maybe some of those people are here, and they haven't read anything in the novel either at all or beyond part one, so I'd like them to be able to still enjoy things later. So I'm going to try to stick to that as well in my comments about it. Okay, so, so with that being said, I'm going to give you my take on the movie in, in broad terms, and I'm not going to get into too much detail because I'd like to hear a lot of, of the detail from you guys. But first of all, keep in mind, I am not a movie critic. And in fact, I am embarrassed to say that I've seen not nearly enough movies uh, in, in my lifetime. Bosch is helping me to uh, remedy that. But there's been that poll that's gone around Facebook about how many of the top however movies you've seen, etc. I can't even fill out that poll. I'm just too embarrassed to say that I have not seen enough of the top movies. Uh, one thing I can tell you, though, is when I do watch things, I typically get very, very involved. Uh, they just I get completely wrapped up in the world that is presented in a TV show or a, a movie, even if it's not a very good movie. Okay, so that's the context that I bring to it. So the thing I wanted to say about Atlas Shrugged is that I did not feel like I was just wrapped in and absorbed. Uh, it, it was better than I thought in the sense that I thought I might want to walk out of the movie. Um, you know, And I had in my mind, if it's really bad, okay, we'll just go ahead and walk out. I didn't walk out, so at least it involved me that much. But I didn't have this sense of just being lost in the universe that was created by the movie. Now, why is that? I was thinking, well, this is the only movie that I watched that was based on a novel that I knew really well except The Fountainhead. Fountainhead, I saw it. I think I got kind of wrapped in it. I probably didn't also get really wrapped up in that. And I'm wondering if it's just 
that no movie is going to live up to the idea that I have of the book in my mind, except for a movie that I made myself. And even then, I probably could never bring it to life on the screen the, the way that I picture in my mind when I read the book. So that could be uh, perhaps why. But I, I do think that Fountainhead did a better job of getting me wrapped up and involved and kind of losing myself uh, that this, than this movie did, of course. I, I mean, I wasn't at all. I, I felt, you know, very disconnected. Uh, the biggest thing that I came away from it thinking was that they needed to let things breathe a little bit. There was, it was just going from thing to thing, and I felt like, okay, you know, check, we got that scene, check, we got that scene, check, we got that scene. Uh, the only scene that struck me as one in which they just let it sit and breathe and you got to absorb it and get the atmosphere of it was Dagny confronting the union boss, and that's a trailer that was, uh, you know, kind of released out on the Internet, or at least a little segment that was released out on the Internet that I had seen before, uh, but still I thought they let it sit you digested the interaction between the two. Uh, I still maybe had a quibble about the scene itself, but at least I thought, okay, you know, you, you actually absorbed it, you were part of it, you felt it a little bit. I thought everything else just kind of went too fast, um, just ran by you. Some people have described the picture as an icebreaker or a highlight reel. Those are two different comments that I saw uh, around on, on Facebook this week. And I thought those were pretty good descriptions. I thought in all you'd say it'd be a good icebreaker or a good highlight reel, not necessarily a movie that gets you involved. Uh, some of the condensation was, was just funny. I think the most uh, kind of embarrassing condensation, if you're the movie makers in this, was the conversation that Dagny had with Dr. Stadler. And I was actually hoping that uh, Bosch would chime in here and describe uh, what our thought was about that particular scene. Can you, uh, yeah, you've got yourself unmuted. Go ahead and tell me, Bosch. I remember, I just, uh, I mean, the casting, first of all, he looked like, uh, I mean, first thing came to my mind was that he was like an Iranian nuclear scientist who defected. Ended up, ended up in America, and uh, out of nowhere, uh, he just mentions his three students. At least that's how I took it. Uh, I have three students, and then she's like, what does that to do with this? And he's like, you know, more or less, uh, I mean, he didn't say it, but he's like, well, stick to the script, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, that's, that's the script. Because yeah. it was, it was, they had their little tiny brief conversation, and then suddenly he's he waxing, it. you know, uh, nostalgic about these three students, and there just wasn't any context built up in the Nothing. scene because, again, there's no chance for you to breathe and absorb and everything else. So it was, yeah, and, and, it, and it was funny because her line was something about, well, what does that have to do with anything? It's in the script, okay? It's in the script. <laughs> so yeah. um, that was, to me, the most abrupt, you know, thing that, that happened. Uh, now, a couple other things. At first... You know, I mean, this is the thing. I kind of went through, well, I don't even want to see it, and it's terrible, and then I thought maybe I want to see it. So then I thought, okay, well, uh, at first I thought it's okay. You know, we'll go watch the movie, and only the first part of the novel could possibly be ruined for anyone because it's only part one. So maybe it'll be a decent ad for the movie that, I mean, excuse me, ad for the book. They'll go out and read the book, and then they at least will have had the experience of reading the novel before parts two and three come out. Everything will be fine. And then I thought, okay, well, in the movie itself, they seem to give away 
too much, right? Because you've got the John Galt character, uh, you know, and, and there was a lot of exposition about, you know, what he's up to and where, where these people are going and everything. And I thought, oh, my gosh, they're actually giving away the whole thing in part one, and maybe it's going to ruin too much of the book. And you can everybody can tell me what they think about that. But uh, the only consolation that I thought, and this is the, the next stage that I went through, I don't know, it's like you're going through stages of grieving or something, but there, you know, there's um, the three different stages. But then I thought, well, you know, they didn't give away the deepest philosophical reason behind what this John Galt character was doing, so maybe that's going to be something that's going to be revealed later. There's still something to, you know, to reveal. And, and I know that there's, you know, at the end it's still left people with a lot of questions of what's going on. But, you know, he gave that speech about the heroes and wannabe heroes. And um, it, it obviously didn't get into philosophy very deeply. So there's still, I think, a lot of mystery going on, assuming that they do plan to get philosophical at all in parts two and three. Uh, now, a lot of the things that we would have complaints about with this come from the fact that this is a low-budget picture, right? Um, and I've sort of reconciled my fact that I've reconciled myself to the fact that if this movie is going to be made in today's context, it's probably going to be a low-budget picture. And the producer, you know, he was flirting with all different, you know, permutations and combinations of actors and writers and directors and I mean this movie has been made and or going to be made and not made and going to be made and not for years and decades right so low budget fine but I think overall the fact that they rushed it so much towards the very end and uh, the fact that they actually didn't consult with someone like Leonard Peikoff uh, you know in making the movie I think really did hurt it. Uh, the longer period of time, of course, would have made that, you know, they would have maybe been able to shoot these scenes and give them a little bit of breathing room. And, you know, obviously, if you're doing things rushed at the last minute, probably they had to work around the clock and all kinds of overtime and pay that. If they could have worked over a longer period of time, they could have, uh, you know, stretched things out a little, spent the money perhaps making the movie about, I think, 10 to 20 minutes longer is probably what it would have taken to have all these scenes breathe and be happy. Um, but, you know, in terms of consulting with, you know, Leonard Peikoff, probably people think, oh, well, he's the head of the estate and everything that he'd say, he'd be too restrictive and, you know, they have to adhere slavishly to the novel, et cetera. Everything that I've heard from him over the years, because there's been several different iterations and scripts and things proposed for this, it's always been good and it's always been with a realistic eye towards this being a movie and not being the novel itself. And I think that if they had talked with him or someone like him, that they would, for instance, not have made a couple of uh, what I thought were very senseless departures from the actual dialogue in the novel. I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, one was the dialogue around uh, the exchange between Lillian Reardon and Dagny, the bracelet for the necklace. Now, as I recall in the book, that it was a bracelet for a bracelet. Why they changed it a bracelet for a necklace, I don't, I don't know. Uh, but you know, why does she say, "Oh, well, I'm just going to toss it in the fire," versus, "Oh, I'd exchange it any day for a diamond bracelet," and then she says, "Oh, well, take me up on that." It just seemed like it could have been a lot more dramatic. Now, maybe part of that was they didn't really want to play up the whole 
real tension and the conflict that uh, Hank Reardon had about Dagny versus his wife, because again, there was no you know sign of that anywhere in the movie. But why why did they have to depart from that dialogue? I think it was perfect the way it was in the text, and I don't think it would have taken any more time. The other place where I thought, okay, this little piece of dialogue that was in the text would have just, I mean, you know, actual novel would have been great, was right after the run of the John Galt line finished. Why didn't they? you know, have Reardon say, I think the line was something like, well, that's that. Or, you know, something just to say, well, you know, they thought it was going to be a big disaster and we got across and then, well, that's that. That I mean, it was, it was perfect. They It wouldn't take any time. And I think it was much better than just, we did it. So that, you know, my impressions of departures from the dialogue that didn't need to be there. In terms of the good, I, I thought several of the actors did an admirable job given the assignment that they were given. You know, some of them were thrown into it at the last minute. Uh, you know, the guy who played Hank Reardon made a serious study of it. Uh, I thought he, I thought he did a pretty good job. Um, I think the you know another thing that you could say is good is that it didn't explicitly contradict any of the content of the novel. And I agree with people who have said that it's not libertarian in the sense that it, there's no libertarian slant on the ideas putting out there. It is it's a superficial presentation of the ideas. It does at least allude to altruism in a kind of a awkward way at a certain point. I don't think it was slipped in very nicely. It could have been put in a different place. But it it was superficial, but it wasn't libertarian in the sense of uh people were talking about, you know, that we're to blame for the oil stuff because we have invaded in the Middle East or any of that kind of idea. Um, the idea that we need to get rid of government as such anarchy is great. None of that stuff was in there. So so that's to the good as well. There wasn't any explicit contradiction. Uh, you could say this is not art. Uh, this is probably better than a lot of movies that are out there today. There were a couple previews that we were subjected to before the movie. One was for the new movie, I think it's called Beaver. It's the one where Mel Gibson is talking through the voice of a beaver while he's going through some psychological recovery. That was crazy. And then I think there were was one or two different movies where some guy uh, is down on his luck and he's living out on his lawn or something. It seemed that there were two different ones like that. I couldn't even believe it. It was just bad stuff. And then so when you look at the contrast between the movies that were being previewed and what we were watching on the screen, that gives you a little bit of perspective too about what is possible today. So those are some of my thoughts. Oh, let me let me just give you my one sum uh up because what I wanted to say was so well, this is Atlas Shrugged and I want I was going to say this is Atlas Shrugged as if it's made by Eddie Willers. And I said, well, that's not quite right, because Eddie Willers is too earnest and too perfectly good for what I thought this movie was. And so instead, I think this is really Atlas Shrugged, made by Paul Larkin, when Paul Larkin is more or less loyal to Reardon, or trying to be, if that makes sense. That's kind of my description. <laughs> One person said this is uh, Atlas Shrugged, made by Peter Keating. Uh, I don't know if I'd go quite that far. I, I really wouldn't. Like I said, I think I think made by Paul Larkin when he's trying to keep himself loyal to Reardon, even though he's sort of being pulled away. So that that's uh, that's my sum up. Bosch, did you have some things to add? I think you had some particulars that were good. Are you there? Bosch? Yeah, there, there were a few. Uh, the, uh, yeah, can you hear me? Mm -hmm, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Okay, sorry. 
uh, the love scene uh, between uh, Reardon and Dagny. Um, it was very tender and soft and sweet, and that's not how it is in the book. It's uh, it's basically two trains crashing inevitably, and uh, you know he didn't he didn't in, in the novel he didn't he didn't just feel bad about it. He was he he felt guilty and immoral, modest infidelity, and he condemned himself and Dagny both. And that, you know, that was totally just left on the side. Um, seeing Dagny for the first time, not on the tiger train, you know, uh, but on our couch waking up. I thought that was just uh, a bad choice. Yeah, and, and um, leaving, leaving out the whole idea that she has this realm of music that she enjoys in that apartment. Yeah. That, yeah, that you don't you don't get this depth of her character at all. There were a few more things I just want to go through. Mm-hmm. Basically, the... Uh, it could be called Atlas Rushed because, uh, as you mentioned about, it was, you know, the uh, producer needed to save his uh, film option. It seemed like that was the most important thing in the world. Making a great film, eh, you know, if we do it, cool. But saving the option, that was the most important thing. That's, you know, that's terrible. Uh, Francisco, uh, when I first saw the pictures of him you know, with the beard and the leather pants and the turtleneck, I was like, I was thinking we might have, like, a Tony Montana-style accent. Uh, but, you know, he wasn't as bad uh, as I thought he would be, which is good. Um, actually hearing John Gold's encounters with those he felt were ready to go on strike, um, I thought that was ears for especially his uh, Hollywood-style pitch to, to join him in the strike, where he goes, I'm like, uh, as I mentioned, join me in Atlantis with heroes and those who want to be. That's just you know, it's terrible dialogue. Uh, I mentioned Robert Stadler um, and uh, Hugh Axton, terrible slob. Uh, nothing like uh, the book uh, shows him to be. Um, totally indifferent to what's going on. I mean, at least that's how he projected it. Whatever, uh, whatever reason they they chose him to do that. Uh, and and just one one last thing about uh, a movie as opposed to a novel. Uh, uh, from personal experience, uh, the first time I came across Ayn Rand was in the Fountainhead movie. That was my late teens. I liked it. Um, couldn't exactly articulate why, but uh, it led me to read the novel. And I think that's what's happening right now with the uh, with the film. Uh, it, it shot up to number one on Amazon in a few, a few different categories, which is fantastic. Um, and that's all I really have, have to say about that for now, at least. Okay, good, good. Thanks. Now, I want to take uh, some comments from all of you, and I'm going to tell you how this works because there's a number of new people on the, the line here. I've actually got 31 people, which is really nice, so thank you for joining me. Uh, on your little dock on the right-hand side, there's a hand icon, and you see a little green arrow on it pointing up, and you click on that, and then you're raising your hand, and that says you want to go ahead and participate via audio. And I particularly want to hear people who now want to say what they liked about the movie. I was giving criticisms, uh, and so those who would want to disagree, I want to hear from them first. So who wants to? Go ahead and participate. I have some written comments, but I don't know. Um, I've got Batten here, and let me see. Batten says, we're going to have to agree to disagree. He says, I think it's, it's a miracle that Atlas got made at all. But I do agree with you that despite its flaws, Atlas shrugged his head and shoulders above the junk being offered in the movies. I had to sit through a trailer of some Tom Hanks, Julia Roberts cringe fest. After that, Atlas was a breath of fresh air. Yeah, I sat through that one, too, and I couldn't remember that one even, so it was so yucky and forgettable. So I, I definitely agree with you there, Batten. Um, if you, do you have a USB mic, Batten? Because it would be great to go ahead and let you talk if you've got that. Let's see, he says one more thing. 
You think that the Atlas Shrugged movie is far superior to the Fountainhead movie? Huh. Now that's interesting. <laughs> and other people are saying, wrong, no, oh no. <laughs> well, we'll get that perspective. Bosh, what do you think about that, having seen both? And having the Fountainhead really affect you? Did it, didn't think of it. That is interesting. Um, I mean, there were... I don't know. There were parts uh, that I, I I fell in moments here and there during uh, the the Atlas Shrugged film that maybe I didn't do with the uh, with the Fountainhead one. I just I thought the Fountainhead film as a as a kid was interesting. Um, this you know had some moments. Again, the guy who played Reardon did a really good job at times. Um, no, we've got we've got uh, Robert actually agrees with Batten, and Robert says that it's not that it's far superior, but he agrees that it's superior. You know, there's one sense in which I might agree with with you, Batten. There is that uh, the lead character Reardon is played better than I guess Rourke at points in the in the Fountainhead, maybe a too stiff and et cetera. I I don't know though. It's, to me, the Fountainhead just looked like such a nicely polished movie g compared to this. Um, yeah, and, and this is Batten. He says, absolutely. He, I guess he doesn't want to talk to me live. He wants to, to text chat. Um, he says, absolutely. I've got the impression that Gary Cooper had no idea what Rand's dialogue was all about. And maybe that's true. Now, the thing, you know, again, a lot of these actors were thrown into it the last minute, but they have tremendous resources available to them. Namely, as far as I understood, the actor, who, and I'm, I'm doing this man a horrible injustice. Somebody please tell me his name, the man who played Reardon. Can you do it, Bosch? You have a good memory for this. No? Grant Bowler, yay! Thank you. And um, the only thing I did get right is I had the argument with uh, with Bosch. He's he's foreign. I think he's Australian. And he says, "No, I don't think he is." Uh, you can't even hear his accent right. in the movie at all. But um, he said that he made an actual study of watching some of Rand's lectures. And why? Because you can just go on the internet, click a few buttons, and then you get to see some of these lectures, and you get an idea of the philosophy behind this. Even if he didn't have a chance, which I think is possible, even if he didn't have a chance to read the entire novel before they started shooting, he could get a sense of the philosophy and the ideas behind it very easily by spending one day just rooting around the internet and watching all kinds of uh, speeches. So let me see. I'm going to do a rundown of, of everyone on the, the list here. I've got some hand raises. Oh, good. Batten's got his hand raised. He's going to talk. Let me, let me get him unmuted. Batten, go ahead and try. Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Oh my God! Oh, that's great. I underestimated myself. I didn't think I'd be able to get this thing going. Excellent. So, so, what else do you have besides what we've discussed so far? Well, uh, as far as uh, Fountainhead versus Atlas Shrug, I think you're you're partially right that Fountainhead is better directed because King Vidor was a brilliant director, and he understood Rand. I don't think the final product. Uh, uh, really does the book justice at all. Uh, so in that respect, it, it's better directed than the Atlas Shrugged movie. However, I mean, Jackie and I, that's my wife, mm -hmm. if anyone listening, uh, we saw it opening night, and it was a packed house, and the entire audience seemed to really enjoy it. They laughed in the right places. Uh, there was applause when... Uh, when uh, Something very good happens. I won't give anything away. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I think it got its 
points across for, in fact, I'll go further. I, the, the main, the, the high point of the book is it goes into each character and, and their motivation. If I have a real criticism about the movie, it's, you don't know why Wesley Mooch is the way he is or, uh, why, uh, Ridden and his wife are together. I mean, the book goes into more of their backgrounds and motivations and right. Rand was very good in, uh, 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 just, just, having a line of dialogue explain volumes about a person uh, in her description of the character. So outside of that, I think, I thought, I thought it cut to the chase. And as Bosch said, I think um, it, this will inspire people to go pick up the book and see what happens next rather than waiting for next year. Now, how did you feel about, were, were there spoilers in your opinion in Galt and the things that he said and the little speech at the end about the heroes. You know, I was surprised to hear you say that because uh, I, I I really didn't think it was because I think everyone in the audience will put two and two together. You about, you, th you uh, think that, that they will put two and two together? Uh, that they that they, it, it was obvious that this guy in the shadows was uh, uh, cherry picking the leaders. Of uh, the leaders of industry, uh, for for his own purposes. Uh, let me say that without giving anything away. Though I think everyone listening to us knows the story. Right. But anyway, but you know what I mean. I I didn't think it was giving anything away, and and I thought they handled that pretty well with a freeze frame and the character's name and saying the date he he disappeared. Now, some people don't like that as a technique that you have in a movie that you're going to have text on the screen saying stuff. Uh, you know, I, again, I'm not an aesthetic expert. It didn't bother me too much. I mean, I think having that there and then having a lot of the other things fixed, you're right. But I think you're right about the, the issue of the director. You know, what, one thing that I had forgotten to say was, you know, the thing that came out at the end, I said, if you if there's all these problems, you're going to blame the director more than anything for it. Um, and then I guess the director himself was the one who was galt in, in the movie. At least they didn't show him so that maybe if they do a part two or three, they could actually have a different actor in that role. Yeah. Or, but, or they may even get more money to uh, to beef up the production value. Exactly. I mean, I, yeah. I I didn't. I read this uh, somewhere along the weekend where someone said that the movie itself kind of represented what Dagny was going through with the John Galton. Yeah, uh, a lot I of people have said that, and. I mean, and again, in a way, I, I I sort of agree. After all the times that they've tried to get different people involved, and the last one was the Brad Pitt Angelina Jolie thing, and it just never quite was going to make it to the big screen. And moreover, suppose um, you did have a production that was based around Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, then I think we'd be having a very different conversation sure. about how horribly it misrepresented the ideas in the book, not, oh, well, it was the superficial. And the, so I think you would have maybe gotten great production values and a horrible misrepresentation of the ideas, sure. perhaps compared to this lower budget. But again, if they, if they did this lower budget production over a nice period of time with the proper planning and maybe consulting some of the people, uh, you know, like I said, Leonard or, or somebody like him who, who, you know, can give them 
real-world advice about how to make a decent movie from this uh, and not do, like I said, some of those senseless departures from dialogue. I mean, why, why change it if it would work okay as a movie? There were places, of course, that they would have to change it or they would have to add a little bit of dialogue here and there to take the place of some of the descriptions, the long descriptions in, in the novel. But I, in some places it just puzzled me why they would just not keep whatever was there because it, it was good. Uh, I mean, she spent how many years writing this thing, right? I know. So, well, thank you, Batten. I definitely wanted to to give you. Um, I've got cool. I've got a lot of uh, text-based comments here with all kinds of exclamation points and, and upset people. So I'm gonna have to let people uh, say the other side of the story here. So thank you, Batten. And I think next we we should talk to to John. Um, John is. Dying. He's had his hand up since before we started, so let's unmute. Okay, John, so I know you've written a lot. Try to give us, first of all, the essence of what you want to say and give us some examples to back it up. Out of deference to, out of deference to you, Amy, I am going to severely curtail myself. Well, I mean, um, I, I, I don't think you should edit yourself in terms of com, uh, content at all, but, uh, of course, We'll, we're not going to be able to talk at length as much as the essays that you've written and everything. But no, tell me, tell me exactly what you think. We want all the points of view out here. Okay. First of all, the thing that is first and foremost in my mind is the fact that the only proper standard by which to evaluate this thing is purely aesthetic. It is a work of art. And attempting to assign value to it or judge it based on any other criteria is, A, ignoring the law of identity that A is A, mm -hmm. and B, it is complete and utter context dropping at its worst. So aesthetic evaluation is the only criteria upon which it should be evaluated or assigned any value. And with that in mind, this is quite possibly the worst movie I have ever seen in my life. The worst movie you've you, seen you, the worst movie you've seen in your life as a movie. Yes. Okay, so as as movie qua work of art. Okay. It is as bad as anything I have ever seen in my life. You referenced the uh the trailer for the movie The Beaver. Mm -hmm. And I was I was lambasted with that one as well. And just thinking about a movie like that, as a sense of life evaluation, I can look at that and go, oh, my God, that would be torture to sit through. Right. But I guarantee you that purely objectively on an aesthetic basis, it is light years better than this was. If you look, if you look at the script, which was the biggest travesty in history. There's no doubt in my mind that all they did was take, just cut and paste a hodgepodge collection of all the dozens of scripts that have been attempted, started, aborted, cast aside, and cobble them together with no integration, absolutely no big picture idea about it at all. As a result, this thing had no identifiable plot. It was just a collection of individual scenes, and the individual scenes were for the most part incredibly badly constructed, conceived, written, acted, everything in their own right. But
but as a whole movie, it was nothing but a bunch of isolated individual outtakes clipped together in a bizarre sequence with no bridging connection between them. If you had never read the book, there is absolutely no way on earth this movie would have made even the slightest bit of sense to you. But Okay, so John, just, John, John, so one, one thing that I've done over the past several days is I've tried to uh, encourage people in different fora that I participate in, people who have not read the book, I said, well, what did you think of the movie? And then I also watched a clip that was a compilation of people who hadn't read the book. And some of the people who haven't read the book insist that they pretty much understood what was going on. They were left with some sort of a mystery at the end. They didn't totally understand, you know, why the end happened as it did. But they're saying that they they sort of understand. Now, I'm very sympathetic to the things that you're saying in terms of because it seems like such a chop, 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 and then a lot of the individual scenes were badly done themselves, that you, it's like you don't have a total, you don't have a movie. It's not integrated, and maybe that's why I didn't get lost in it. I could get lost in individual scenes, but probably then I'm also bringing my context from the novel to it. I'm, I'm sympathetic uh, with, with your evaluations, I mean, so far. But, you know, again, I, I don't have a an organized aesthetic sense or, or a way by that, that I evaluate movies according to various aesthetic criteria and go down and organ you know I just did I get lost in it? did I not what did I like about it? what did I not like about it this is this is what I'm giving you but um and and I agree if you say you know if someone asked me is Atlas Shrugged the movie a work of art I would say no um and and the question is what I say a lot of the things that are in the theater are a work of art I, I, yeah, a highlight reel or a uh, icebreaker, those two things, that, you know, the, the two descriptions I've heard, that, I, I think that's an apt description. And I do think that some of the acting and some of the scenes was good, and, and I could appreciate some of, some of it in there. But, uh, you know, the, the only thing is it is interesting. People who haven't read the book say that they are getting something from the movie, and it's encouraging them to read the book. So how, how would you explain that? They just don't know what they're talking about? or Did you ask them whether or not they knew anything about the book? Maybe they haven't read it, but have they discussed what it's about? Do they have some general sense that it's supposed to be about uh, producers versus moochers or government regulation against capitalists? If you know anything about the book, you could gain some small modicum of... Well, even even if you don't know anything about the book, you can still gain some small modicum. Because, I mean, they were talking about the directives that they were going to, you know, enact and the content of them, and ha they were disgusting. And, you know, the, nope, if, if you have a profit-making business and you can't fire anyone, I mean, I think people who would be sympathetic to hearing that sort of message would understand it from what was presented in the movie, no? Okay, but okay, let, let's even go with that. Do you think that some small, isolated, floating abstractions of snippets of didactic presentation as ascribe any sort of aesthetic value? Because I don't. Yeah, I, I mean, again, there's the question of, is it something that people get to go see in a movie theater that validates certain ideas that they have about way, the way that the world is right now and what needs to be done about it, right, versus 
I mean, do people even go to a movie theater expecting to have a wonderful artistic experience anymore half the time? I, I don't know. Uh, probably a lot of the people who are happy with this movie are people who are thinking, oh, my gosh, finally I'm seeing something that is explaining in terms that I understand and agree with all the horrible things that are going on in the world, maybe doing it in a very choppy way and this and that, but... Perhaps it's a, it's, 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 it's a relief at seeing some of that. I mean, typical movie is the businessman is this horrible, evil villain, and here they're the heroes and, and they're being applauded. Um, I, I mean, I, I agree. You know, you walk in there, you, I mean, I totally sympathize. I, I walk in there, I would love to see a real work of art on the screen made from this movie, and I don't. We didn't get that. Um, we didn't get that. And then the question is, what what did we get, and what what sense do we make of it? Um, give me. Okay, so you talked about the individual scenes, and you talked about the fact that there didn't seem to be a plot overall. Uh, what did you think of the acting? I thought the acting was mostly uniformly bad. Okay. There are a couple of exceptions. I thought Grant Bowler, mm-hmm. as an actor, did a, did a better job than I expected. Okay. Now, the script he had to act from was heinous. So the character of Hank Reardon itself is presented very, very badly. Mm-hmm. But Grant Bowler, the actor, did better than I expected. I, 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 that was a highlight. You know, if calling something better than average is praise, there's my praise. The only single isolated about two-minute piece of real praise that I could put on this thing was, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, Cohen, the actor who played um, uh, Owen. Mm -hmm. The scene where he goes in and he resigns is the only single, what, basically two-minute snippet of the movie that I would say was genuinely good from an artistic standpoint. And that's only because that actor was the only one that I thought showed real, correct emotion and complexity of expression in what he was doing in his little six-line, minute-and-a-half-long piece. You could literally see on his face the struggle and the resolve that went into what he was doing. Mm-hmm. That was actually a two-minute-and-a-half, a, a two two-minute snippet of actual art jammed into this movie. The scene where Reardon refuses to sell his medal was decent. Right. Um, the... And this falls into the category of not as heinous as I expected, and Bosch Bosch actually uh, touched on this, and that was Francisco. Francisco D'Antonio is my absolute favorite, most revered literary character in the history of this world. Um, And when I first saw the first clip, of online of this guy walking in, you know, Bosch referenced Tony Montana. My first thought was this guy looks like Benicio del Toro's even greasier little brother who would only be comfortable in the back room of a third-rate, you know, strip club uh, selling a kilo of blow. You know, the the thing that but, I saw that the, I saw pictures ahead of time, and the picture that I saw was that he was wearing leather pants and a turtleneck. 
And obviously, the, I don't think that made it in the film. I was so glad that it didn't, but, oh, that would have been horrible. Um, but yeah. I was shocked. I was shocked that in the few scenes, and Francisco should be all over any movie that's the first third of Atlas Shrugged. Mm-hmm. He was only in a couple scenes, which was a travesty. But the actor who played him, for all the problems I have with his appearance, which are too numerous to list, he actually delivered his dialogue more comfortably and naturally and meaningfully than I expected. Mm-hmm. So, in that sense, I'll call that a highlight. In now, that it um, was not the grotesqueness uh, I expected. You will, you will be horrified when you hear what I'm about to say, which is that in some previous iterations of this, I've heard discussion oh. of uh, perhaps cutting Francisco out as being a, a viable option, and and not one that was met with horror. So. Think about that. I mean, you know, again, and this is the idea of actually making a single movie out of the entire novel, that you might actually end up cutting Francisco in some strange way to make a movie out of it. it so um, so we've got, we've run down with uh, plot, acting. I assume the directing is something, uh, a criteria that you have, and you agree with us that the directing was yucky? It was It was an unmitigated disaster. Um, the editing was terrible. Uh, the yeah, give, give me, give me, give me, good. give me, give me one example of bad editing. Uh, just the way they cut from scene to scene. With, I mean, it literally looked like an unfinished, dry product. You almost expected to see um, shots between every scene of that little, uh, you know, the the. the thing you always see in the movies and stuff where they snap it with the little this is scene card on it. I mean, it was, there was no flow to it whatsoever. Um, Yeah, no, and I I agree that chop, chop, chop from scene to scene, and I don't know if it's the editing or the fact that they didn't get enough on film to let the editors even work with. So I think that might have been a problem as well. With with such a compressed shooting schedule, they might not have had enough, you know, for the editor to even work with. And you have one more category of comment, and then I want to go ahead and go on to somebody else. So let's... Uh, the characterization was truly non-existent. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, they in this ridiculously bad excuse for a plot, they just have people going around doing stuff, and there is absolutely no attempt made in this film whatsoever to get the audience to understand what drives these characters, what motivates them, the meaning of their actions, why they do what they do, they just act. They just do stuff. And then some little TV in the corner, in the background, that's on some 24-hour news channel with talking heads spouting some sound bites about, you know, in, in a political context about, you know, this law or that law or, or some, you know, something like that is supposed to provide the only context for understanding things while people just fill the screen doing stuff. Okay. It was ridiculous well thank you for sharing your opinion and then other people who wanted to uh to find his 
notes on Facebook can find them as well to read more. Thank, thanks for contributing here, John. And I'm going to go ahead and go on to somebody else. Now, I think that Robert has a little bit more of a favorable impression, so I'm going to go to Robert and then Pooja. So first, Robert. Hi. Hi. Hi, Hi Amy. Thank you. And Bosch and everybody else. Yeah, I will. Uh, I'll backtrack and say I've now seen the movie three times. Wow! Uh, the first time was, was at a, a a private screening in New York uh, in in March, and I actually sat with Andy Bernstein, and we were happy to live to the day to see the film. You know, at least the first part completed. Uh, both of us went in with relatively low expectations and came out pleasantly surprised that. Um, it wasn't as bad as we expected. So um, I, I won't go over the details. Much of the criticism that you and Bosch have said, uh, I do agree with, and I, I can even add some, but I, I want to emphasize uh, two, two, two things. One is, um, just as a contrast, I, I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. That was my favorite book before I started reading Rand. So from like age 12 to about 15, 16, and waited decades for the films to be made. I saw each one the first night it came out, midnight showing, you know, each year came out three years in a row. And every time I walked out of the theater for the first showing, I was angry. All I focused on was what was wrong about the, the, the film compared to the book what they missed, what they emphasized instead of not emphasizing. And I went through a lot of that with uh, my first, first viewing of Atlas Shrugged as well. Uh, when I saw it again, I said, well, you know what, let me look at, at um, just one idea of, of, we know it's about politics and there's, they're always emphasizing, overemphasizing the politics. Uh, not only in the film, but even even the current wave of, of Atlas Shrugged's popularity is exclusively based on politics. No, no one really talks about ethics. But there were five different times they mentioned selfishness in the proper context uh, of what it means. And I was amazed that I missed that, that that glossed right over me uh, in my critical mode of watching the film. And that... I've never seen before. I've never seen that in the film, even the Fountainhead. And and my problem with the Fountainhead is, you know, when I read when I read the book, it's greatest book, greatest experience I ever went through, and I could never get past Gary Cooper. I have the DVD sitting on my library, and I can't watch it. I cannot watch it, and I know I will watch Atlas Shrugged uh, many more times. Mm -hmm. So that's that's where I say uh, there's a difference for me uh, in thinking. That um, that is actually a more favorable presentation of of the uh, of the work. Now, the other thing is, uh, which is odd, because Ayn Rand wrote the screen the screenplay for for the Fountainhead, so right. obviously right. it's hard to top her. Uh, impossible to top her, uh, um, literally. But I, I my context is is just a bit different in the sense that. I'm looking at this, I mean, here's where I disagree with John. No, <clears throat> the purpose of making this film is not purely aesthetic. It is to get people to read the book, uh, which I think you, you mentioned earlier. Um, as far as I'm concerned, that's, that's the main purpose uh, uh, as far as its value, its, its overall value. I'm not l limiting it to artistic value. And um, 
I have a, I have a big family. We actually have a, a film back, you know, uh, background in, in my family. My father was a film editor. My brother is a film editor. And my brother sat with me. And, and he's read, he's read uh, my family's read the book uh, due to my prodding. So uh, the ones who have seen it and, and have read the book, Mm-hmm. They thought it went by fast, but there were no down, you know, what what you and Bosch and what I guess the consensus is that there, you know, it, it rushes by too fast. The way they took it was there's no downtime in it. There's no, uh, in other words, there's no lapses, which is a negative thing in films where you have time to wander and lose, not lose yourself in the story, but lose track of the story. Mm-hmm. So, and I thought it, relatively faithfully followed the story of part one, except for what has already been brought up, um, bringing in Galt, you know, as a, as a visual uh, character and explaining that uh, this person vanished. Uh, so, you know, I, I agree with the, with the criticism of that. But uh, last night, no, uh, Friday night, I'm sorry, there were a bunch of objectivists went to a sold out show um, in Union Square, and one of the women said uh, she hadn't read the book, but two things, and I've heard this from, from several people. A, they want to read the book, and B, they're really looking forward to seeing part two, which again tells me that it, it, this is connecting. This is actually a success in the, in, the, um, in the sense that I personally want it to be a success in pushing people towards Towards um, reading the book now, I, I could, I, I maybe Bosch is a, a good one, a good person to ask. If you saw the Fountainhead first, it would have to affect how your enjoyment of reading it for the first time because you know you generally know what's going to happen, and so the drama of what of Rourke's courtroom speech or the or, or what Rourke goes through is kind of taken away, and that's certainly going to happen with people who watch the film uh, before reading the book, but I just think that it's a matter of getting this to as wide an audience as uh, as possible and letting those people make, make those decisions uh, on how this book will impact their lives. So in that sense, I, I think of it as success. I'm telling people I know to watch it and um, I agree with you with the with the opening with the with the trailers. I never go to films. I always walk in right as the film is about to start because there's so many car chase scenes and and there's so much garbage that you have to sit through for 20 minutes before you go to actually see the film that you that you uh, pay money to see. So um, and this was a big contrast. Uh, other two two aesthetic things. I like the music. I liked how they covered the John Galt line. I love seeing the rear steel stenciled into the uh, the actual metal. Right. The blue the bluish green tinge. I thought that was one thing they got right. One thing they totally got wrong. I agree with uh, Hugh Axton's. Um, that was just god awful. And the thing that really pissed me off, uh, really angered me. Sorry about that. Uh, was that, was that, the word. that you could the say? Okay. Was that um, they 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 tease you by showing the cigarette uh, uh, with the dollar sign, and then they just left you hanging. And that is so important to close that scene uh, by by at least having Dagny pick up the cigarette, or just that's a clue for her finding the uh, the inventor uh, of the motor. 
And I know, uh, I don't know him that well, but I do know John Aguilaro, and frankly, I want to be, I want to be a consultant on parts two and three. And I did ask, he was on, by the way, he, he and, uh, two, uh, he, Harmon Caswell, um, the other producer, and, um, the actor who plays, uh, Jim Taggart, they were on John Stossel, um, uh, this past, this past week, mm -hmm. and I was in the audience. I didn't know that they were going to be uh, on the show, but I, I know John, and I got to ask a question which they took out of the uh, they took out of the TV episode, and it was about the ethics. I said, yeah, everyone knows it's about you know everyone knows it's pro capitalism, but what about you know what about rational legalism? And John Sassel himself um, thought I was talking about presenting the entire philosophy, and I said, no, it's just about uh, that's not the entire philosophy. It's a major part of it, and that's what's revolutionary about the book. And John Aguilar-Loro answered by saying, this is about individuals going up against obstacles, which is definitely shown in the film. However, however, it's not precisely or um, um, echoed the way Ayn Rand does it beautifully. You know, I I feel bad. I I wish they did. I wish I was there. You know, pointing pointing to them, saying, "Wait, let's make this more consistent." But it's something, and to me, that is that is that's what I walk away saying. The context of the culture, what we're expected, and this is no way I would I would see any other movie that they previewed before Atlas Shrugged and say, "Okay, I'm going to see that movie instead. I prefer that instead." Okay. No, I'll I'll take. Okay a watered-down version, um, all things considered. Okay, thank you, Robert. Thanks. Thank you, Robert. Sure. I'm going to go ahead and mute because I'm, um, I'm, uh, I'm getting a lot of feedback. Okay, and then I've got also Pooja who wanted to tell me about her experience with some people who hadn't yet read the book and uh, went to go see the film. What, were, what was their reaction, Pooja? Uh, Amy, I spoke to two women, uh, and both of them are tea partiers. I know them through the local tea party and through my attendance of the um, tea party tax rally. Uh, so I'll give you the feedback I received from both of them, and then I'll just give a small conclusion uh, of my uh, ideas on the movie. Okay. So uh, the first woman, um, you know, woman A, um, we were talking to her, and what she said was that she saw the movie, and she was a little confused by it. Like, she couldn't tell who the bad guys were versus uh, the good guys. Hmm. And uh, so, you know, yeah, and and that kind of validated uh, me, um, you know, the... Uh, uh, something that I saw in the movie, that it, that it did not go as far as... Uh, saying, you know, uh, right or wrong, you know, dif distinguishing between right and wrong. So, uh, I'm hearing some noises from your computer. Are you there? Am I still online, Amy? I'm hearing some noises from your computer. Are there some? Okay, are you hearing me now? I can hear you, but I think we also get feedback. Okay, yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, okay, so that was woman one who was confused and didn't know, you know, who were the bad guys and the good guys. And then the second woman, uh, she uh, was moved by the movie because, uh, you know, the way she reads the current uh, political scene in the U.S. and, you know, the growing governmental control and regulations. Uh, so for her, seeing that on the screen was very moving, and, and she was... Uh, 
overwhelmed and she told me that she couldn't uh, she in fact asked me why is it that we have to wait for a year to see part two you know i mean by so time, tell, tell her I, to read the book now that would be perfect <laughs> I, uh, I did actually tell her to read the book um and and read it before and, they see another part of the movie because i think it's just you know i i would i would hate for somebody to watch all three parts and not have read the novel first at least like i said the the saving grace of this is that if a part of the book is ruined for them it's only part 1 and then they get get to read and enjoy so um, one question, did the woman who you said was moved by it, had she had familiarity yeah. with the book ahead of time at all? Oh, yes. yes. Okay. Because, I mean, that was what uh, John Kegabine was saying. He was saying that maybe, um, you know, maybe these people who did enjoy it, even though they haven't read the novel, maybe they had some familiarity with the novel beforehand. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, what, she was the founder of the local tea party, and she's the one who arranged, you know, for the whole group to come together and go see the movie. Okay. Okay. And you had one other thing you wanted to say before I move on to Daniel? Yeah. So basically my conclusion, and I have seen the movie twice. Uh, the first time I saw it from my perspective and I, you know, I broke down in tears as soon as I walked out of the theater. And the second time I went with the group, with the Tea Party group, and I saw it from their perspective. And that was not so bad uh, because I did, uh, the first time I saw no response from the audience. You know, the second time, because there were Tea Partiers in there, you know, there were you know, smiling at something, and, uh, you know, I saw some kind of response, and they clapped at the end, so that was a better experience for me. So basically, what I, my conclusion is that, uh, you know, this movie is going to be liked by those who are already on its side of the ideas. You know, it's not a view-changing, I mean, we all agree that it's not a life-changing movie, but it's not even a view-changing movie. You know, as far as uh, whether um, it will uh, make people read book, at least for me, the jury is still out. And I'm going to keep track because I have a couple of friends who have seen the movie and have been prodding to read the book. And I will, in you know, coming months, find out if they read the book because they've seen the movie or not. Okay. And then just keep us updated on that. Thank you, Pooja. Yeah. I, was, I was just going to uh, say one thing. She said uh, the people who like the ideas are going to like the movie and vice versa. Obviously, that's not true. Uh, we know that John very much likes the ideas and doesn't like the movie. And I, I think there are a number of people, particularly there was someone uh, who I was friends with on, on Facebook. I think he's actually left Facebook now, uh, but partly because he was upset about some of the reaction to this movie. He recently read the novel within the last year and a half read it for the first time and he's a very artistically sensitive person and really just drunk in all of the aesthetic value of of the novel not just the ideas and he was just horrified by the movie and just thought it was terrible so i think people who come to it expecting wonderful beautiful you know beautiful aesthetic values on the standard of some of the world's greatest movies are are not going to like it, even if they they love the ideas and so with that I'm going to go ahead and agree with Chan but I want to go ahead and let Daniel uh he said he also has some experience with people who hadn't yet read the book but went to go see them Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you Daniel. All right. So the people that I had spoken with who hadn't read the novel and saw the movie they were completely confused and they said that it seems like that they're crazy in this film. And that's a really good way to gauge the characterization. Everyone is insane. Like, okay, we have Ellis Wyatt, and he's chumming it up with Reardon and uh, Dagny, like Mikasa Esukasa. Yeah, 
Ellis Wyatt actually says that. And then all of a sudden, John Galt shows up in the middle of the night. You know, he's like a thief in the night in his menacing, you know, fedora and trench coat looking like a 1940s <laughs> villain. Like, nah, I've come to take away your producer. But, you know, and then, and then all of a sudden, you know, Ellis Wyatt, who's the happiest man alive, just disappears. It's, it doesn't, the, the characterization makes no sense. Then let's look at it on, and, and so I think a lot of people who saw that picked up on that. Not having a, a, a unified plot, or just not having a plot at all, as John pointed out, makes people, makes people that are not just wanting to see it and, and get some sort of like, oh, hey, look, there are businessmen up on the screen. So I'm just going to like focus on that single element and ignore you know, everything else about this movie. This movie is atrocious. The reason why the book sales are going up is not because people are seeing this movie and they're inspired in any way, shape, or form. I don't think... So, so why, why do you think it is, but, then? Because it's, it's on Drudge Report. Hey, Atlas Shrugged, that thing that I've been hearing a lot about. Wow, it's on Drudge Report now. Wow, they're making a movie about it. Maybe I should read this. It's just PR. The only thing that this movie is is PR. As, a, as an aesthetic work, it is... I watched Battle for L.A., which is about space aliens fighting Marines. And I was more entertained and I had more of an emotional connection to that movie than I did to the Atlas Shrugged movie. Now the was, characterization was, makes... Go ahead. Was, was there anything in the movie that you liked? No. Not, not a single... I thought the entire thing from... Like, oh, God, there is so much wrong with that movie. Hank Rudin is a smiling idiot. What is with, he is not like some brooding industrialist who is trying to figure things out, is perplexed by the world around him. He comes across as a happy-go-lucky fool. I mean, he sleeps, well, gee, this is, this is literally, you know, Dagny, when I wanted to ride on that train, or when I was riding on that train with you, all I wanted to do was kiss you. Like, it's like he's a high, he's having a high school romance with Dagny, but he's married, and they just play it off like it's some big joke, like, oh, Hank, you're a married man. Isn't this scandalous? Tee hee hee hee. I mean... Now, so, so, someone had said, well, that just reflects the changes in values from No, no, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. No? Okay. No, because what it does is you destroy Hank Reardon's conflict. Hank Reardon has no conflict. Oh, yeah, no, I, I, I agree completely. He, he didn't seem conflicted at, at all, which was a terrible aspect. But I, I don't well, think, think it, about, I don't think it was the actor's fault. I think it was the script's fault. No, whoever wrote this script, they should be banished from writing for the rest of their lives. I mean, they the only thing that they can do is use disjointed exposition via newspapers and audio clips to tell to try and tell a story. But even then, events just pop out of nowhere. I mean, and and think about this stylistically too. Remember the dinner party. This is probably a brilliant illustration of how horrible this film is. Okay, the dinner party, all the dialogue from the dinner party is eliminated. Instead, we're treated to a montage of guests enjoying themselves with big band music playing in the background. Right. It makes no sense. Right. What is going on here? Yeah, I mean, I think there was, there was a little too much atmosphere and less content wait, wait, there. And then, and then talk about... They, they talk about how good the cake tastes. They no, talk no, about I know, Dagny, I know, I know. Dagny and Lillian talk about their dresses. Dagny yeah. seems like a completely average human being who has no sort of clear motivation. She has no clear idea of what's going on. This film is almost, and I think you could make the argument, this is like if you took 
a romantic Atlas Shrugged, and you replaced it with a naturalist version of Atlas Shrugged. Mm -hmm. Because the characters hardly, hardly initiate any action that makes any sense whatsoever. It's just stuff happens, and then they just kind of respond to it, and they just jump all over the place. I mean, there are shots of the hillside and the daisies on a hillside, like on, on the scene where the train is... Oh well, yeah, no. The, the scene with the train. I I could have had two few. I mean, two fewer. Um, you know, two less scenes with the hillsides and the beautiful Colorado scenery and whatever. And why not have more of the people at the train stations waving and cheering them on right, at right. least? That, well, that I mean, and that that was in the book, and it wouldn't have taken any more time than cutting out of those right. little scenery. So he, no, I the I director agree. doesn't now, understand aesthetics. Let me Just let me give you. Let, yeah, I think you're right. I, and again, it's back it's back to that director. Any final wrap up words you want to give? Because we're over time now. Sure. It, it, one thing, it has no thematic um, integration. Mm-hmm. There's no way that you can understand this. And I'll say what I said on my Facebook page. It's like someone ripped the soul out of a man and left only the body. And that is that is what you get with this movie. You get the, the physical appearance of Atlas Shrugged with everything that's great about it gutted out of it. So it's like a zombie. Okay. Thank you, Daniel, for your contribution there. I would really like to, if, if Batten was still on, give him a last word to give a, a counter-argument, because everyone else that I see with their hand raised was on a, a more negative note. You want to say one last word in favor, Batten? Well, it's not a perfect movie, uh, but it's a start. And uh, like I said, uh, I, I think, especially for young people, there's at least one movie that if, if they're on this wavelength, it's for them. And I'm sure they'll embrace it. And I bet down the road, this movie will be looked upon as the beginning of a new trend. So thanks for letting me uh, get that in. Oh, I, I always, I try if I can to end these shows on a, on a positive note for sure. And uh, thank you for participating today, Batten. Okay? Sure. I, uh, do you have to wrap up? I'm a little bit over time. I wanted to say a few things before we go. If you're listening to this on iTunes and you've been enjoying the podcasts, or I guess if you're not enjoying the podcast, you can go and write reviews and, and rate it. Uh, also, I do have a page on Facebook. Don't Let It Go Unheard has a page on Facebook. Come like my page if you're enjoying the podcast. And then finally, I have, through my blog, announced a Quran reading group. If people are interested in doing something that they sort of feel they should do out of intellectual self-defense, which is where I am with this, and also kind of making a statement that we're actually going to read this thing cover to cover, uh, I've got a fairly painless way to do it, which is that we'll read about 20 pages a week starting on May 10th. We'll take a week off around 4th of July for a little mid-semester break, so to speak. And uh, we'll discuss it each week, commiserate, whatever. And if you would like to join that, go to my blog at don'tletitgo.com. Okay? Thanks very much. I uh, love having you guys here listening and participating, and I hope to talk to you next week when we return to our regular dose of politics. Take care.